0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. This is Jonah Goldberg. This week's episode is brought to you by uh, Americans for Prosperity and uh as well as the National Review Institute. We'll hear more about that uh, stuff later, but thanks to both of them. And uh, we have in the studio, in flesh and blood, despite – or in response to – ah. Uh, Somewhat eager Twitter demand. <laughs> we have, uh, uh, Noah Rothman of Commentary Magazine. You're a as- associate editor? Associate editor. Okay. And, uh, also a co-host of the Commentary Podcast, which I am a frequent, uh, listener, uh, listener to and, and, and mocker of, uh, despite the fact that I, I, I like it very, very much. Um, There was always that old joke about – I think it was from Al Franken about the original show Hannity and Combs and it was Hannity and Combs. And they would put like Combs in like 10-point font and it would be Hannity in like 30-point font. There is a certain aspect of that to the commentary podcast. We
1: toyed with J-Pod and friends.
0: Yeah. there's Uh, a There's a certain kind of like Pod and his entourage feel to it at times. He's gotten better. And then he's gotten worse again. And then he
1: got better. It, it's his show, Jonah. We're privileged to to even be there.
0: Yeah, but it's 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 not the pod podcast, it's the commentary podcast. Anyway. Um and of course, you are the author of Unjust, uh Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. I got that right? Yes. Um and that's what we're gonna talk about mostly in a little bit. But since you're here and um you are a um renowned and recognized practitioner of the rank punditry arts. Uh, I thought we would start since last night was the State of the Union. We would just do a little bit of that. Um, uh, I, I generally despise State of the Union punditry, but it's also de rigueur. We could kick of the Union. So what did you think about last night?
1: Well, I mean, it was good for uh, a Donald Trump speech. and you, know, you could tell the the moments where he probably chafed at the text because it was so uh, ambitious and appealing to the better angels of our nature. And, and I mean, that's just not where he is so, well, I appreciate that. It's just it it sort of felt a little bit forced and it's probably why it's going to be forgotten in about 48 hours.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I my I the LA Times asked me to do a state of the union preview and I got some stuff right and some stuff wrong. But the one thing I'm really confident about is that by this Sunday <laughs> it, I wouldn't be first of all it'll seem like it was in the Pleistocene era, right? And it may be that not a single Sunday show talks about it cuz something will come up, right? Yeah, maybe. Uh, and Maybe not. Who knows? But I thought the single most interesting ad lib in that entire thing, and maybe most interesting ad lib in Trump's presidency, was last night when he's talking about the wall. And he made up on the fly this line that he would like more immigrants than ever to come to the United States. They just have to do it legally, which was a strange thing to say, given that the last major immigration impasse was because he wanted to radically tweak legal immigration from whole countries, as he right. put it, right? What do you think was behind all that?
1: I just, I, I don't think that, I'm not really sure. Maybe he really genuinely believes that, but I think his instinct is just to appeal to superlatives. Like, he just really likes to say biggest, best, most. Sure. So when he wanted to talk about immigration and wanted to talk about legal immigration, it had to be the most legal immigration. That's just where his instincts are. I, I think, as, as in policy terms, he's probably closer to Stephen Miller, who, you can imagine, his blood ran cold in that moment. Yeah. Uh, I, so I, I don't. It wouldn't
0: shock was... me if Stephen Miller strangled the white cat <laughs> that was in his lap when he heard that line. But um, um, and I, like I mean, I kind of agree with you. It was a better speech than I expected. It's a better speech than he usually gives. I thought the Democrats were kind of brilliant and not taking the troll bait and kind of were applauding and not looking petulant for the most part. Well that's where he's really good, right? Is that when he talked about for
1: example how much how many women are there are in Congress and Oh, everyone applauded because he was just appealing to their narcissism, and then they appealed to his narcissism, and everybody's reinforcing yeah. each other's <laughs> impression of one another as just being, you know, historic and monumental. And that's how you work a room. The guy knows how to work a room really well. There was one moment in the speech, though, that did just sh- shivers down my spine, where he had this Jackie Childs moment, where it sort of
0: rhymed. Oh, like I know, yeah, rhyme yeah, yeah, yeah. scheme. Yeah,
1: whoever wrote that should not write speeches
0: yeah. anymore. I, I, I hated it at the time, and my, I will not. Because I have to keep a high wall separation here, I will not characterize my wife's, who's a speechwriter's, reaction to it. But I hated it, and and I there was an, and it was built up to this whole alliterative thing um, as well. And alliteration is often the last refuge of uh, illiterate, but uh, noted a device I shall no longer use. No, no, no. I, I like alliteration, but you know, like it, it, there has to there has to be like a joke to it, right? Nattering nabobs of negativism, that kind of thing. But, yeah, no, I, I – so I hated it. I, I thought it was badly written. I thought it was dumb. I can also see it becoming a mantra across sort of right-wing talk radio and and primetime Fox because it's easy to communicate. These guys are actually pretty good at coming up with pithy little bumper stickers that mimetically stick in people's brains and all of that. But on the merits, I thought it was ridiculous. I hated the USA, USA chance. I thought that was tawdry. And the only other thing I thought was really weird was um his delivery off prompter. If you had your eyes closed or if you were in my case playing this game on your phone called 2048 and you were just listening, it sounded almost like it was a highlight reel montage because he didn't put any air between – Completely different paragraphs, and so he'd be talking about, and so we have to care for the children, and you know, and help one another. And on North Korea, we must stop. And it was just like there was, it was weird how they were sort of butted up against each other.
1: Yeah, but, there were, the transitions weren't especially smooth, and I'm not sure what that what that is. Was that you know, did he fail to read the prompter appropriately? Did it get stuck? You never know because a speechwriter, as you know. Would uh, have a smoother transition from one topic yeah. to another, and, and those were kind of jarring. Or just like a double space
0: or something. But um.
1: <laughs> but I mean, I was watching uh, CNN. You know, sorry to my uh, my employers over at M- NBC, um, to get so that the lay of the land. And um, Rick Santorum savaged it. He thought it was the worst, one of the worst speeches he'd ever heard him give. Did he really? In part because it just it abandoned the sort of working class, reform conservative agenda to which he's a little bit more amenable. Uh And I wasn't especially... Moved by any of the policy positions, there was, you know, uh, some real uh, you know, offhanded remarks about foolish wars that can derail our economic growth and what have you. And I'd, I'd love to hear him expound a little bit on what our military commitments abroad. He did are save foolish. us from war with nuclear with North
0: Korea, right? I thought yeah. it was an outrageous thing to say. But yeah.
1: Anyway, Ex- extremely strange. And we'd like to expound a little bit on the yeah. alternative history that he thinks would have occurred there. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I wasn't I didn't find it appealing really to my instincts as as sort of an interventionist, uh, market absolutist conservative. So what did he not see in it yeah, that I didn't see in it either? Maybe he just missed the mark everywhere. Yeah.
0: Um, all right. That's enough rank punditry for me, frankly. <laughs> um, I'm just sick of it. So you wrote a book about social justice. And uh, it turned out that there were some people on MSNBC who didn't see eye to eye with you about social justice. I, to be expected. I was stunned, <laughs> really, um, next to finding out that bears are using our national forests as toilets. I have never been so shocked in my life. All right, so why don't we start at, sort of at the beginning? Give me a clear-cut definition of what you think social justice means and um, why it's a problem. Uh, I can't. It doesn't exist. There is no clear-cut
1: definition, even among its... Its most faithful adherents. Um, it means many things to many people. It's very malleable. And that's probably why people who don't have real regular day-to-day experience interacting with social justice devotees think it's a pretty unobjectionable concept, you know, just a way for us to think about fairness, equality and in a just society, writing historical grievances. And that's true to an extent. In the hands of its activist class, however, as you wrote very graciously today in, in National Review, given the book a little bit of a plug, it has become the enemy of the conduct of justice as we understand it in a courtroom, blind objective justice. Its advocates look with disdain and hostility upon concepts that are really at the heart of the American founding ideal, meritocracy. The notion that you have individual agency and your accidents of birth are not an obstacle to to your advancement in life. They believe that accidents of birth in many ways put you on a course that is predestined. Um, Separatism, racial demographic separatism has become a good thing for many of its advocates. Explicitly because it prevents social discomfort and colorblindness in institutions, not just in your daily life, but in institutions, is naive at best and dangerous at worst. And when I, you know, talk to social justice advocates on the left, and I tell them, "Well, white nationalists believe all this too," they kind of look at you funny. Mm-hmm. They hadn't really thought about it that way. And uh, part of the book explains why the distinctions between these two extremes are so blurred at this point that I decline to make them. Mm-hmm. There are obstacles on the pathway to the real reconciliation, real historical justice, and addressing institutional racism, which exists. I mean, the book is not an advocation, or it doesn't advocate for, um, uh, ignorance. Um, racial awareness, self actualization is not something that I'm taking on in this book. It's not an anti identity politics book, although I'm genuinely hostile to the concept. It's anti identity politics in practice. This is identity politics as an alternative theory of societal organization, as a governing ethos. And it's dangerous. And we've seen it practiced abroad, and we shouldn't want to see it practiced here.
0: Yeah. So, this so, in a, in a remarkably underrated book called Tyranny Cliches that I happen to write, I actually worked quite a bit on social justice stuff. Um, I was helped by the fact that my research assistant had just helped Michael Novak do a monograph on social justice. So it was a lot of already done research I could go into. And I came away with – to me, it's – I can say this in my podcast. It's all bullshit. right? I mean theoretically it's bull. The concerns are real, right? Um, I'm against racism. I'm against institutional uh, rigging of – Against meritocracy, right? Things like nepotism are are bad in the public sphere, and they're also unavoidable in the public sphere and the and in the private sphere. But when you start trying to drill down and get anybody to commit to a definition of social justice, it's it's you know to paraphrase the who, it's it's an eminence front, right? <laughs> it's a foot on. I mean, it's like you can't find. There's no there there, and so the problem. The way I began the chapter on social justice and tyranny cliches was that scene from Caddyshack where Judge Smiles is explaining to uh, Noonan how he sees a lot of goodness and badness in his courtroom in my time, and and you should be on the side of goodness, not badness, right? That's what social justice is. It's we get to claim what is bad, we get to claim what is good, and if you disagree with us, you're on the side of badness.
1: One of the points that you make in the in the piece, too, is that it's, it's generally about power and dictating the terms of on, of debate. And one of the I mean, I step on a whole bunch of third rails in this book. And one of the things that I do that is probably very frustrating to my critics is that I I, I don't play by the language rules and sort yeah. of identify terms that I think are appropriate to describe some of their policy preferences that they vehemently object to, like benign ghettoization, mm-hmm. um, which is a term I use in the book, and I used it on MSNBC. And and I'm still catching a lot of flack on I'm Twitter sure for are. that one. Um, but I don't know how else to describe separatism with the idea that engagement with individuals who don't share your demographic traits is harmful, right? potentially traumatic. Uh, and in order to separate, segregate, essentially, um, that you have to create these little individual, uh, ethnically mono- uh, monochromatic, for example, uh, ghettos. So that's what I'm going to call it. Uh, there's a variety of examples of, of episodes like that in which, uh, you know, I sort of go after the, the pieties of the social justice movement, because it is... Very religious. I mean, these are vestigial religious traits. It was a religious concept, and its its, it's activists treat it like a theological idea. And control, controlling the language is, is probably the biggest pushback I get. The second biggest pushback I get is you just simply don't have the experience to opine on these things with any authority. Your, right. your, your traits of birth um, preclude you from understanding our experience. And that's true to a large extent, although I, I do find it revealing why is it when true to social, any extent? I don't, well, when social—well, because I am not African American, I'm not a woman, and I don't have that experience, and I'll well, freely admit that. But that's beyond the point. I'm not writing this book as an uh, Irish Catholic German Jew heterosexual male from New Jersey. These are ideas that are to be engaged with on the terms of the ideas, and if you keep
0: pressing them on, it, eventually they do engage with the ideas. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I personally think that the idea that an idea cannot be held independent. From the color of the skin or the ethnicity or the gender of the person who is offering it to be profoundly pernicious and, <laughs> and atavistic right i mean genetic determinism yeah well it's it's uh, you know if if I say two plus two equals four, it shouldn 't matter whether i 'm a hermaphrodite or not right i mean it just if uh, um, and if I say that on net free market economics has done more to pull people out of poverty than any other system in all of human history. Um, The color of my skin should be entirely irrelevant to that assertion, right? I mean, there are some things that we can adjudicate through data, through facts, through reason, through logic, through evidence. And the only thing you can talk about with expertise that privileges you are your feelings. And your feelings can be interesting and they can be derived from an interesting experience, but they don't really matter that much in a serious debate. And I got to say, watching you and MSNBC these days – it is astounding to me how much – so much of the progressive debate is basically about shared feelings right. rather than actually – even when they're talking about data, it's how they feel about the data <laughs> um, that that seems to drive the passion in the thing. And maybe I'm just – because I'm so a- isolated, I have noticed this stuff more. But it's 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 bizarre to me. I mean, you see the same thing on Fox, but I'm used to that.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm reading now um – I put it off for a long time because I wanted to finish the book before I read it. Um, Greg uh, Lukanoff and John Hates Coddling yep. of the American Mind. And I knew there would be some parallel thinking in there, but I didn't know how much parallel thinking yep. until, until I read it. I would have been self-conscious about putting out this book had I read it beforehand. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it stems a lot from the campus culture that we've seen develop since 2013, which they identify, um, which prioritizes feelings and the notion that encountering ideas that may be discomforting to you constitute harm. And that's one of the themes in the book is the extent to which this idea has has legitimized in the minds of its adherents, people who think that speech can actually generate harm and cause physical trauma, that you're obliged to respond to that with violence, it's practically self-defense, right. uh, and that's become something that we've seen more and more in uh, on, in the streets. But I I also propose in the book that it has a lot to do with the fact that the existential moral questions that they think need to be addressed by American institutions simply can't be. They're not designed to do what they want to happen. Um, another term that I use in the book that frustrates people to no end is negative discrimination as opposed to positive discrimination, which is what affirmative action is. Mm-hmm. Um, and negative discrimination has become the point. Uh, it used to be that you rise up the disenfranchised and If there was negative discrimination there, it was touched on sotto voce. It was almost collateral damage. No more, no longer. Now the objective is to impose some retribution on classes and tribes that are due a comeuppance. And American institutions can't deliver that. So what happens to you when you have this existential moral question, and nobody's listening to you, and you can't generate some kind of of redress for these grievances? Two things. One, you withdraw become very depressed, uh, resolved that your political activism is toward no end and you disengage from the political uh, world. Second is to radicalize and resolve to attack the foundations of these institutions that are so morally reprehensible that they cannot be saved. And that to me is probably what I think is generating most of the Backlash in terms of street violence that we 've seen from the identitarian left and the identitarian right, which you know are more
0: dis- more similar than they are dissimilar in many ways um, okay, so I want to come back to the history of this stuff a little bit more. You make the case that Rawls John Rawls, for listeners i know was a very nice liberal philosopher that his concept of the veil of uh, veil of ignorance was the impotence impetus for Social justice, but there's also the Catholic thing which I know more about. Either way, which is odd for a guy named Goldberg to say, but um uh, why do you explain the veil of ignorance part and its relationship to social justice and how contemporary social justice falls short of the standard that he is establishing? Right. So briefly, and you probably do know more about
1: the Catholic stuff than, than I do, but to briefly social justice as we- I wasn't saying I know more about it than you, I just say I know more about it than Rawls. I and mean, I you know. might, um, because, uh, you know, that's, I, I'm generally not religious and mm-hmm. training um so as i understand it social justice was really first used in the in a in a way that is uh, recognizable to us today in the late 19th century in the catholic church as sort of a alternative um to the secular protestant enlightenment Catholic Church had a very different experience with the Enlightenment in France than the Scots and the English did. And so they created this idea, which essentially, which has some collectivist elements. And you can see the outlines of a collectivist philosophy there. But it was it was much different. It was basically an idea about charity, one's obligation to one's fellow man. And in the late 1960s, early 1970s, John Rawls put a little bit more meat on these bones and identified how we think about Justice is sort of a finite commodity, that it, can, it exists here and it doesn't exist there and there's really no supply chain. So in order to have a, a just distribution of justice, you need to have an enlightened distributor. And for this enlightened distributor to operate in a just fashion, he must operate behind a theoretical construct called the veil of ignorance so that his own personal biases could not be satisfied, conscious or otherwise, by this distribution. Modern social justice activists have no need for the veil of ignorance. The veil of ignorance is morally obtuse. How can you have a just distribution of this finite commodity if you don't know who are the beneficiaries of your distribution? Who are the, the, the people and groups that have been historically oppressed who are benefiting from conditions that have historically privileged their particular tribe, whether they know it or not? And it is incumbent upon the enlightened distributor to ditch the veil in order to achieve a just distribution of uh, these
0: finite goods. Yeah. So um, on Rawls, I have a couple objections to Rawls. Well, I actually like – I think the veil of ignorance is an entirely useful mental exercise, right? The way I always understood it was you basically – you're in a kind of limbo and you're asked how would you design a society so that it would be maximally fair to you if you were born into it but you don't know if you're going to be born rich or poor, black or white, gay or straight. And so how would you set up a society so that not knowing what identity you would have when you were born, you had the best chance of being treated fairly or with justice or whatnot? I think that is a perfectly legitimate way to think about a system. I don't think it's dispositive. I mean, there are other ways to think about it, but it's a useful sort of heuristic, right? And there, one of my problems with it is this thing that you keep referring to, which is that uh, you know, this has been a bone of contention by me for a long time that uh, liberalism or progressivism is basically uh, an ongoing effort to replace God with the state, to use – to have the state do the things God would do if God existed or if I were God and that's entirely what Rawls is doing there, right? Is He's putting himself in the place of God and he's creating de novo – The world. But the second problem I have with it is that I, you know, I'm not, I'm essentially pro-life, but I have my quirky, um, attitudes about some of it. And, but the Rawls test about not knowing how you would be born under what circumstances, the one universal thing that everybody waiting in that limbo would like is to be born. <laughs> and, and certainly not to be arrive in Kermit Gosnell's shed, you know, <laughs> you know, for a brief horrific moment. I don't mean to make light of it because it was horrible. But, um, and then there was the third point, which is sort of Jack's bugaboo, which is just that whenever push came to shove for Rawls, he abandoned the veil of ignorance right. to the demands of social justice. Yeah,
1: and that was essentially Hayek's big problem with it. Maybe his biggest critic, and it's certainly his most. Uh, expansive and and a comprehensive critic, was that no matter how you slice it, this the the prescription here is to create institutions that are dedicated to equality by uh, treating individuals unequally. Uh, And it's capricious and arbitrary in practice. And there's simply no way around that. If you're if your idea here is to abandon the notion that individuals are individuals and they can't be treated as individuals and you have to treat them as though they're uh, members of a tribe or a class, you are going to be engaged in, in, in inequality. So the institution that is dedicated to this social justice maxim immediately becomes – a uh, a dangerous institution an institution dedicated to um, the furtherance of grievance because it is dedicated to the social justice mission of treating people unequally it it, it is self contradictory in that sense the second you engage in this mission of of affecting social justice maxims you are you are engaged in oppression and inequality,
0: which also gets to i mean so as you know I wrote this book there's a lot of overlap between. My first book, my second book, and my third book in your book. <laughs> that was another one that, and yeah. I, <clears throat> so I, I, you know, I confess, I
1: apologize that uh, Suicide of the West was the first Jonah Goldberg book that I had ever read cover oh. to cover. And oh. I had already, I have the, the emails to prove that I had already submitted the manuscript, but again, I was very self conscious reading this thing because when the universe hands somebody an idea, you can bet that 1,400 other people have that idea and it's a race to get it to market. Uh, and this There are also these moments, right? There's these, there.
0: these, I mean, in. in book writing, there are these moments where just certain ideas are in the water, right? Because the problems are obvious to certain people of a certain worldview and sometimes they seem from slightly different perspectives. But like when my book came out, Pinker's thing on the Enlightenment, you know, uh, Patrick Deneen who obviously comes from a kind of different perspective. But uh, And then all these books about nationalism are in the pipeline. I feel bad for my colleague, Rich Lowry, who's got a book on nationalism and coming out and at some point and whenever it gets here it's going to be like the ninth book on nationalism that's going to show up on my desk in the last year.
1: Um, yeah, the, the book is also designed for real commercial accessibility too. It's sure. It's trying to
0: try No, it's a great book. I mean, I' trying, trying to did, be, you know,
1: know, I mean, yeah, if there's any interesting, you know, original stuff in there it's because it's accessible to, you don't have to have, you don't have to be a bookish person who's consuming conservative blogs all the time in order to get this stuff.
0: Um, so the question though, I'm kind of changing my attitude about intellectual history, and I, I really want to write a big piece about this. I used to love doing this intellectual connect-the-dots thing. You know, philosopher A says something five hundred years later, philosopher B says it. Aha! That must mean that philosopher B was influenced by philosopher A, right? And I love that kind of intellectual history, and sometimes that kind of intellectual history is true, right? You can trace the lineages of ideas; they can actually document it. But I, I'm moving much more to sort of moral foundations theory stuff from Jonathan Haidt and these guys. And I think there are just certain things that our brain, our, our brains have sweet tooths, right? We want – the reason why we like sweet things is because in our natural environment, it was very rare to get sweet fruit and it was a great source of energy. So the second you got it, you scarfed it all down as quickly as possible. And, and in modern circumstances, that's a problem because you have as much sweet stuff as you want. But there are other things that are just designed to get through the blood-brain barrier faster. And one of these things is this idea of social solidarity. We crave it. We, it was our evolutionary adaptive advantage in the state of nature because we were a cooperative species. Apparently, all of the tribes made up of Randians died out. <laughs> and, and so this, one of the through lines between sort of my first book, Liberal Fascism, and this, where I made some of these same points where you know the left and the right the conception of the sort of the – we didn't have the word outright, but the sort of the Nazi-ish right, right? And the hard left, racial essentialism, something they both believe in. They believe in obviously this concept of social justice defined as what's good for my team. There's a certain amount of populism to it. There's a certain amount of uh secular religion in the Vogelin sense. It seems to me that like I'm too much of a Hayekian not to th- believe this, that social justice is just friggin' reactionary, Right. right? It is – it's not a sophisticated ideological position. It is – a lot of sophisticated phrasing and marketing around these ancient human drives of tribalism and power. And a desire to get over and punish your enemies.
1: And, and I should say, I mean, that I uh, – and, and also the through line, um, probably in my view, the most important in terms of an organizational philosophy is this paralyzing sense of victimization. The notion right. that you have had obstacles placed before you by powers that are uh, omnipotent and unseen and ill-defined and you have had what has been taken from you, robbed by people who deserve redress and you have to appeal to a strong hand to have that which was robbed from you, restored. Um which is why it's a totalitarian philosophy. And so linguistically, there's you know these pseudo-academic handshakes, secret handshakes that allow you access to the, these worlds. So if you use words like cis-heteronormative and know what it means, mm-hmm. you can be taken seriously enough to say benign ghettoization and not have your right. head chopped sure. off. Yeah. Um, so you do have to play a little bit of linguistic games, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, that is – it's a, and that's um, – I'm blocking on the name of the guy uh, who wrote – Um, this very influential academic text, which is essentially a a, a Trojan horse for revolutionary Marxism. Um, But he's... Pretty well regarded in in these circles, and I talk about him in the book. And the extent to which you can say absolutely nothing of any value, but as long as you say it with multisyllabic words and right. these you know sort of academic buzz terms, uh, then you'll be taken seriously. And if you really actually read some what some of these people write, right, they are slogs. They are really difficult to get through texts that have nothing has been said. Um, there you go. Thank you. Pedagogy of the Oppressed uh, by Paolo Fier. Uh, yeah, that's. that's I'm, gonna, that's, I'm gonna rush. I'm rushing to Amazon now. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a painful. I, yeah. I, I, I confess I didn't get very far into the book, but I wrote, read enough of it to know that it's an absolutely morally vacuous text and just a. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, as I said, a Trojan horse for revolutionary Marxism, and um, but very influential among people who are educators, higher educators. Uh, and it's that sort of thing where you can just adopt these multisyllabic terms that are shared in in these uh, academic environments, and you are, are allowed access to those academic environments, even though you don't really have the the foundational uh, philosophy and and intellectual background to opine on these issues with any any relevance or authority. Yeah. No.
0: Um. It's, uh, it's a perfect, some of these things are perfect examples of shibboleths, right? I mean, the, the story in the Bible is you couldn't pronounce shibboleth without the lisp sound. You got your skull crushed in or whatever it is, right? And, is that true? Yeah, I think that's where it comes that's from. fantastic. Uh, and, um, and so one of the things that I, I get so frustrated with all of it because it's just, it's, it's, there's a English philosopher, James Harrington. Uh, who actually made some Rawlsian kind of arguments about how the way society should be organized is you get to, along with the basic principle of if you have a pie, I should let you cut the pie, but I get first choice of the piece. And that creates an incentive structure where we're all institutionalized to be fair, right? And that's sort of the Rawlsian thing too. Um, but he came up with this term called priestcraft, which – was sort of essential to Rousseau's indictment of the Philosophs. He just basically said the way the priests used to use their power to rig the system for themselves, uh, now the Philosophs are doing the exact same thing. And so the, all of this polysyllabic, um, stuff that you talk about with, with higher education and the social justice crowd, um, to me, it's just, again, it's an eminence you know, it's just this, It's this con where they come up with these words and then they say, if you don't know these words, that means you're not sophisticated and you can't engage with us because you are not right. woke or glued in or whatever. And they use it as a way to circle wagons around institutions of power and purge them of anybody who disagrees with them.
1: So that manifests in gullibility, right? Uh-huh. I mean, you are really uh, s- subjective or uh, easily um, manipulated there. So one of the... Best chapters. My, my the most fun chapter in the book is on the the manifestations of social justice in in, in modern daily life, and it's all about really superficial, pseudo intellectual nonsense, like pop, basically about pop culture. The mm. um, in part because as the social justice movement has grown broader, um, its its targets have actually become smaller because people like you and me no longer are responsive to the outrage mob. So they have to direct the outrage mob at people who are generally already predisposed to agree with you. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. um, Comic books, movies, authors, artists, food trucks, people who are on the social justice left already, academics in particular, are uh, accused of transgressing against a social justice norm. And the outrage grows right to 11, and they are made to supplicate and genuflect And um, because they're responsive to that sort of thing. It would disappear in two days if you didn't do any of that, and people have demonstrated it. Another great phenomenon is uh, this new fad of woke capitalism where you have these brands that are embracing politics writ large. It's mostly just cultural issues, really impossible to define or certainly to resolve in the political process, cultural issues. And the public eats it up, not because, I mean, they're not rejecting this notion that, you know, my brand takes a takes a side and it's alienating half the customer base. The public loves it. They want their brands, poll after poll is shown, they want their brands to take social activism uh, seriously and have some sort of a response to social conditions, um, which is by the way, a way for us to participate in politics without doing any of the actual homework. Uh, so it, it appeals to the sense that we're politically engaged people without having to actually know what we're talking about. But the best example of that was this: the statue woke uh, Woke Girl. Um, uh, fearless Girl. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Fearless Girl was this bronze statue, um, little, little, uh, you know, uh, elementary age, school age girl standing arms akimbo across from the Wall Street Bull. And it was feted by Democratic politicians left and right. Bill de Blasio said it was this attack on patriarchy and really a challenge to men who were made very uncomfortable by it. It was very hard to find a man who was made uncomfortable by it, but he was sure they were. Uh, Elizabeth Warren made a pilgrimage down to lower Manhattan, what have you. And it allowed them to escape a lot of scrutiny that they probably deserved. They had these pants It was, uh, by the way, it was sponsored by an an investment firm called State Street Global Advisors. And they had pamphlets about how to... Known haven of social justice. (laughs) (laughs) It was supposed to say, look, this statue is telling you that you need to have more women in C-suite executive positions in the financial services industry. But if you read some of their literature, for example, of how to to talk to a female investor, it was rife with stereotypes, basically how to talk down to women, don't ruminate too hard on certain (laughs) concepts, like very... Woke stuff, and it wasn't long before there was a um, Department of Labor audit that found out that this firm had been systematically discriminating against its female employees. It settled for five million dollars to the two and five million dollars for about three hundred and five female employees and some African Americans. And all of a sudden, the, the the fetting of this statue, Gail Collins said it was the most important act of uh, of uh, protest since the, uh, the the female protests in the antebellum era that desegregated the trolleys. Uh. All this stuff went away. Because they've been had, and it happens
0: more frequently than uh, than I think this this group would like to admit. Since we're on the subject of woke capitalism, let me talk about for a moment what we might call enlightened capitalism. Uh, from midwestern towns to coastal cities, trade helps build strong communities where businesses thrive and Americans have high-paying jobs. Study after study shows that trade creates more and better-paying jobs here at home. In fact, trade supports more than thirty-six million American jobs. Protectionist policies like tariffs are hurting American workers. The last year, tariffs cost Nebraska farmers and their families up to 6,000 farm-related jobs. In fact, I was just reading uh, this morning that virtually all of the money that Donald Trump and the State of the Union bragged about coming into the Treasury because of the tariffs, which again are being paid for by Americans, are immediately going to compensate the farmers who have been... Denied, uh, the ability to make a, uh, make sales in, in the traditional way. Anyway, small businesses are hurting too. Brinley Hardy, a 179 year old business in Indiana, laid off over 70 employees. In Missouri, 60 jobs were lost at Mid Continental Nail Corp and hundreds more could follow. More American trade means more good American jobs and lower prices for the things we buy. The more we sell, the more high-quality, good-paying jobs we create across America. It's time to tell Washington to end the tariffs. Instead, let's break down trade barriers and allow free and open trade. Learn how you can make a difference at www.tradebuildsamerica.com. And if you didn't realize, that was the ad from Americans for Prosperity. Right, let's stay on capitalism for a second. I like capitalism. You know, what is two thumbs and likes capitalism? This guy. Um, my thumbs are pointing meward. This gets me one of my great gripes about this idea that corporations are right-wing. I mean, you make a good point about how it's the the social justice crowd has to focus on the people who respond to the social justice crowd. It's sort of like when you were a kid and your brother was picking on you, if your parents would always say, you know, if you don't let him know it annoys you, he won't do that, right? But big corporations always cave to these kind of social justice things because they feel like they have to. But one of my great peeves is this idea that Corporate America is right wing, which is like this holdover from Thomas Nast cartoons and boiled, you know, and, and warmed over Karl Marx. You know, Fortune 500 companies tend to be incredibly politically correct, tend to be incredibly concerned about seeming woke and, and, and progressive and all of the rest. And, um, and there's literally nothing that you can point to that, you know, maybe there were, you know, some, Coal miners in the 1930s who were – or coal mine owners in the 1930s who were dedicated to crushing the forces of social progress. In fact, I'm pretty sure there were. But that just doesn't exist anymore and yet the, the sort of social justice crowd is still bought into this antediluvian understanding of what capitalism is.
1: Yeah, the, um, <clears throat> and they would also point to executive compensation as as a flaw in the, the fundamental basic idea of, of how markets work. And I think it was uh, – I think Bill Buckley wrote about this in like 2005, that executive compensation that is untethered to market performance is, is a rejection of market signals. Right. It's the it's the opposite of how a market is supposed to work. And he quoted some philosopher with, with – I, I block on the name of the philosopher, but the quote I internalized is, the problem with socialism is socialism, and the problem with capitalism is capitalists. Right. Uh, and that's a, a pretty good way to look at it. Uh, it 's not the system that 's the problem it's you yeah, uh, and uh, for you know the woke capitalism phenomenon the, the the fact of the matter is that the bread of a lot of these companies is just no longer buttered at home. There are coastal markets, and foreign markets are are really predominantly what is what is really on the mind of a lot of these multinational corporations and so when you say see places like Pfizer, for example, just saying that we will no longer support any any use of our products in in lethal injections. It's reflective of sort of a social change, and that's that's a good thing, frankly, because these companies are supposed to be responsive to their to their customer base, um, but their customer base is is not really you. I mean, it's much broader than you at, at this point. So people feel like okay, they're not really they're not really servicing their demands of their customer base anymore. They're they're working with this very small activist class. They're really not. They're the same fiduciary you know challenges or pressures that are on these companies that used to make them very averse to uh embracing some sort of a political concept are are still there the pressures are still there it's just the pressure is on them now to be politically active um and you like it too Republicans like it too. There are plenty of woke brands that that approach republican issues and are conservative issues and and mirror these really shallow uh cultural fights uh to try to demonstrate that they're engaged in in, you know, political activism and it's a substitute for political activism and it makes us all feel like we're engaged in political activism. So yes, the right isn't immune from these pressures.
0: Have you found is there any self-avowed social justice theorist or warrior or activist who offers an economic vision that is meaningfully distinct from socialism?
1: Well, I mean, I don't really deal with a lot of economic visions in this book, um, because no, not really. I mean, to me, there wasn't a distinction enough from the social democratic platform and social justice, which is one of the things I encounter when I do uh, right-wing talk shows, is they really have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh I think social democrats and social justice is is pretty synonymous. They're entirely different. um, And there is an economic... Aspect to social justice, obviously, um, but it's it's become much less prominent as the activist class has become more focused on identitarian issues, cultural grievances, and rectifying social wrongs. Um, it's because it's not really based in, in market forces. Uh, it does have a socialist prescription, I think, but again, it's so it's it's not dissimilar dissimilar enough from the democratic socialist platform that I didn't really dig, dig into it.
0: Yeah, no. So because I mean, it's interesting, it used to be that and i had friends who were in academia and they would they were closeted conservatives and they would say look all the arguments are between people who want to say everything is about class and the, and all the people who want to say everything's about race yeah and it seems like the things being about class thing is receding a bit and being subsumed into basically just sort of envy of rich people more right. than anything else well
1: the Rawlsian notion of redistributing justice is is a socialist notion just applied to justice. I mean, right. it's, or essentially the economic prescription is redistributionism and you can think about it in this abstract concept or something really much more firm like capital, um, but it's the same prescription. And to the extent that there is sort of a, a Marxist through line, it was that, you know, for the, for the Marxian, all so, all disparate sources of conflict emanate from one source class. And that's a way you can unite these disparate conflicts into one. And for, Identitarian activist, it's essentially intersectionalism, that all disparate sources of conflict really stem from one conflict, and that is over-identity. And intersectionalism, as a theory, I'm sure you've talked about, is a pretty valid way to just think about how prejudice works in America and in the world, how... Briefly, how uh, this theory approaches this topic is that you as an individual are born with certain traits. Some of them are discriminated traditionally more than others. So somebody who has more of these traits will experience more discrimination than somebody with less of them. And these prejudices overlap and they intersect. And in theory, this is a, a good way to comprehend how prejudice manifests in the United States. In practice, as an organizing principle, it is... Uh, self-defeating, and you need only look at how the Women's March imploded, perhaps the most preeminent uh, practicers of intersectional theory and practice. Um, It is an idea that forces you to think about yourself as inhabiting this complex matrix of persecution, and the people who are ostensibly your allies are not really your allies entirely, because they have different, disparate traits and and inhabit a different intersectional universe. So um, white Jews... Are practitioners of white supremacy, whether they know it or not, and they Mm -hmm. need to be educated by you. They can't be entirely allied with you because they are inheritors of this historic privilege and they, they must be made to know their place. Similarly, this organization embraced people with no political constituency whatsoever. But to deny them that... Uh, That uh, place would be to legitimize the prejudices against which they claim to fight. So they had to embrace Asada Shakur, who's a convicted cop killer living a fugitive from justice in Cuba, and Louis Farrakhan, who's an outright anti-Semite. What would they have lost in abandoning these people? Not much,
0: but they would have also legitimized in their minds these prejudices. In fairness. Convicted cop killers are quite discriminated against in our system. <laughs> I just – you know, it would be clear. Maybe one of the most marginalized. This is the problem I have with understanding the sort of identity politics theory on its own terms. Like I get the class stuff. I get the socialism. I get the Marxism. To me, it's all downstream of this thing I was talking about before, the sort of moral foundation thing about this desire for unity. And that desire manifests itself, expresses itself in different ideologies in different eras, but they all what do you call it nationalism or socialism or the social question or social solidarity it's basically this idea that if we all work our hardest and try our best, we can make this the best yearbook ever <laughs> right <laughs> applied to political philosophy and but the intersectionality stuff I'd, i normally you judge utopian movements by what their utopia looks like. I don't get what their utopia is supposed to look like, and I can't. Get my head around it, like, like classless society where everybody lives each according to their ability instead of or each according to their needs instead of their ability or whatever. I get that, you know, it's 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 a Edenic Shangri La that is turned into BS social science stuff. But what does the what is the social justice nirvana nirvana at the end of history
1: look like? I mean, I don't I don't know either, but I think it's very similar to the Marxian ideal of pure equality based on an engineering a social reversal uh, again it's but the the object that needs reversing is not class status but racial status uh, so you you know I mean the ideal is equality but it's more it looks a lot more like retribution. And the end game is, is sort of as nebulous and amorphous as the the communist classless society. It's it's, it's sort of hard to fathom. Is it, is it, it
0: Wakanda? Impossible. But all the poor people are white people. I mean, I, I, mean I, I, I don't mean to be too facetious here, but I the this is sort of my point. Like a lot of left wing theory has an internal logic and consistency to it. You can see where it wants to go. Well. You know,
1: maybe the easier way to look at that would be the, from the philosophical foundations that buttress the alt-right movement. Yeah. Um, because yeah, they are ad, as similar as you can get to left-wing identitarian politics on the right. And they do have a philosophical foundation and it is very totalitarian. And I mean, outward, overtly totalitarian. Uh, one of the things that we, that I examined in the book was research on the quote-unquote dark enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Now, because racism, white racism is still pretty generally despised in society. These people remain in the shadows. They don't feel like they have a home in academic
0: institutions. We learned in the last week it's more despised than infanticide.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a, l- a little bit more. And, and deservedly despised, although I, I hesitate to establish some sort of stratification as to whether or not it's despised appropriately. I understand. I'm just baiting um, But yeah, well done. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this the philosophy is essentially that, and, and people who espouse it say that democratic, republican ideals are are fundamentally flawed, that an enlightened aristocracy built around some sort of a, a, a despotism that looks a lot more like a corporate board uh, of uh, autocrats led by a CEO head of state sort of situation. I mean, it is, it is inherently anti-democratic, but it believes that that is the the ideal, is that there, there needs to be racial stratification and hierarchies to uh, to identify scientific truths that are just the reality, and, and ignoring those scientific truths is is counterproductive and naive and silly. And I think that, again, if, if you were to strip it of these explicit racial connotations and just identify demographic, uh, demographic X, then the two things would look so similar that it would be hard to ignore the distinctions.
0: Yeah. I mean, so it's funny. I, I tweeted out this morning the column where I plugged mm-hmm. your book, and... Thank you very much, by the way. Fantastic column. I really appreciate that. It's fine. Uh, the, uh, you're welcome. Um, and some guy seemed sincere and nice enough. He's been following me for a while. Used to be at The Economist. He started going after me in a polite way about how you know this idea of an ideal uh, – the rule of law is a nice idea, but it has no bearing on the actual reality that we live in and therefore yeah. um, blah, 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 blah. And my response to him was, even for argument's sake, let's say we don't have the rule of law. I think we're pretty close to the rule of law. We have some egregious examples, but we have a system designed to, you know, figure out when when the rule of law is not being applied. But that's not an argument for getting rid of the ideal, right? And.
1: And what is the ideal? I mean it's aspirational well, in the first place. Well,
0: for me the ideal is neutral, you know, neutral rules for free society, right? And that the constitution is set up not to pick winners and losers but to make the the playing field fair. And it wasn't set up perfectly like way in the beginning to be sure, but it's been improved over time and and all the rest and that's what the rule of law is that's the point that Hayek gets into in the Mirage of Social Justice that in the extended order of liberty you need neutral rules where human will isn 't imposing for retribution purposes or benign purposes its own priorities, and uh, so it was fascinating to me. Jamie Kerchick did a great piece, I think, for us on the alt right about two years ago where he was going to, he goes around talking to these guys, and they you know they they call people who like the Constitution you know uh, vellum fetishists and parchment worshippers and all this kind of stuff. And it seems to me any movement that has a will to power like the kind you're describing, the first thing they've got to do is get rid of any institutions that apply the rules equally to everybody, right? Sure. And the one thing I'll say I, I like about the alt-right, and I think they're vile, chud-like creatures, but um, they're honest about honest, it. Honest, yeah. You know, they they say the things and and they actually, they actually say outright, we need an identity politics for white people. Um, we need to do what the left does. Um, even people who are not on the alt-right, and I don't often defend uh, Michael Anton because I did not like what he wrote about the Flight 93 election. But he's not a member of the alt-right. I don't think he's a bigot or anything like that. But he said in a debate that we had that we need – you know, that this colorblind world that we live in, that, you, that you, call, you pine for, that's gone. And so we need an identity politics for our tribe. Because that's the only terms that we're fighting in that. Yeah. He's since deleted all of that. But who is the um, – among the sort of white supremacist, alt-right, whatever you want to call them, who is the person that you've read or seen that has the most clear distillation of sort of this kind of thing? God, I think –
1: so they're all going by pseudonyms and I I think he was Minchus Moldbug.
0: Yeah, that was one of them. Yeah.
1: I think that's the guy who wrote this. I mean it is an expansive tome. Yeah, um, that essentially outlines this very noxious racist philosophy but in a way that's very comprehensive it is a, a manifesto a governing idea um, and that's probably i think as close as it comes to something that that resembles an intellectual foundation and as i wrote i mean people people identify like uh, Richard Spencer, I think, is yeah, 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 or something, yeah, something like that. Uh, he's more like the Abby Hoffman of this movement. He's he's an organizer and a rabble rouser, but not an intellectual. Uh, they have intellectual theorists, and they mimic the uh, that we were talking about these pseudo academic secret handshakes by adopting their language, uh, and that's very dangerous. I mean, the mm-hmm. people to whom that appeals can made to be can feel like they're engaging in intellectual discourse around these really uh, noxious. Uh, racist ideas um, and and it has a constituency I was talking with I had a very difficult conversation with um, Julie Roginski Mm-hmm. about this book the other day. And uh, for some reason, I put myself in positions to have very difficult conversations about this stuff. I don't mm-hmm. know why. It better be good for the book. Yeah, this is a life we've chosen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, she was trying to identify the ways in which uh, retributive forms of social justice have been necessary in order to achieve a more racially just society. You should,
0: you should just be clear for people, ret-
1: retributive, you mean... As opposed to restorative um, or um, reparative. Uh, Vengeance. The focus is exactly, the focus is on giving the privileged quote-unquote, uh, the comeuppance that they are due, not on lifting people up, but on tamping people down, mm-hmm. negative discrimination in order to achieve downward equality. And that is a pretty dangerous philosophy. But she uses as examples um, the civil rights era's movements, laws against discrimination, which strikes me as sort of a weird example, because anti-discrimination is not what social justice advocates. It advocates discrimination, only the enlightened form of discrimination. But she also brought up um, busing in Boston, which made everybody very uncomfortable. And that was was supposed to be the ideal. But busing was an absolute historic disaster. And mm-hmm. not only did it fail to achieve its uh, its stated objectives, but it alienated everybody and made the project of racial equality in Boston even harder to achieve. Uh, and, and so, I mean, it strikes me as that we're back to this really classic liberal fallacy of intentions being the final arbiter of right. uh, the efficacy of a policy, whether your intentions are just and noble. Doesn't matter what the effects are of this policy as long as your heart's in the right place. And for a lot of social justice advocates, I think their heart is in the right place. And as long as you're, you know, giving some sort of deference to these pieties of social justice, your heart's in the right place. Whether or not that has deleterious effects on the social fabric or on your own psychology, which it certainly does, um, that's immaterial.
0: Yeah. I mean, we should be clear. I mean, I, I'm sure you could list all number of social justice priorities that you think are legitimate and and worthwhile. Right. You know, I can. I mean, I was – for reasons having to do with, you know, original sin or whatever, I was reading through the Green Party platform yesterday <laughs> for that column. And you are, suffer for your craft. <laughs> there are a lot of things, you know. I'm not sure I want, like, independence for Hawaii, but I think maybe – I to me, that is sort of a prudential question. Right. It's not uh, – but, you know, the the – the criminal justice reform stuff that we just had that may or may not turn out to be a great piece of legislation. I know people on both sides of the argument. I certainly think there's all sorts of room of criminal justice reform about like getting rid of sort of the de facto debtor's prison system we have with bail. And I mean, and those are legitimate things and they fall squarely under social justice. It doesn't make them bad. The point is, is that the arguments for them have to be made in terms of what is properly just called Justice, right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, it's the social justice part is is it's all about power. It's all about you know uh, sweeping, well intentioned at times, sincere at times, but virtue signaling kind of will to power stuff. And the only way of, in democracy you can make the case for these things is it has to be on the mer- on the individual merits of the reform that you're looking for. And sometimes social justice guys are right and sometimes they're wrong.
1: Yeah, criminal justice reform is a fantastic example of this because it was just a, a very tentative first step in the right direction. Literally, it's called the first step, <laughs> <laughs> ideally. Um, but uh, for, the, for the activist class, I mean, it doesn't go far enough, right? And there's sort of a temptation towards fatalism if you're in an activist class, no matter what, if your ideals are that you need sweeping reform and incrementalism is some sort of a a capitulation and a half measure and that's unacceptable, then you're going to be really frustrated by American society because we don't do radical reform. We do incrementalism. And this is a step in the right direction and should be acknowledged as such. And you didn't get there because the claim was that these individuals who are suffering the racial disparities, which are now broadly acknowledged in the criminal justice system, are the result of uh, some kind of uh, historical f- uh, forces that need to be, the balance needs to be brought back in order to to lift these people up and tamp these people down, and you need to shut up and check your privilege. That kind of argument wouldn't have established the consensus to affect these kind of reforms, that the consensus was forged around the idea that, we need to be treated equally as individuals before the law. That is the winning argument. Right. And that's not what social justice advocates want in theory, whether they say it out loud or not. Their theory is, is opposed to that.
0: Yeah. Martin Luther King, I think this is the point you make in your book. I know I make it in mine. Martin Luther King's appeal was to white Americans to live up to their own ideals. Yeah. Right? You know, He says in the March on Washington, the founding fathers wrote a promissory note You know that we've come here to collect, that all men, including all black men... Are created equal, and so he was basically saying, "Is you're not living up to your own ideals, you're not living up to what you believe." The sort of, sort of Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael version of all that stuff, Black Power, is much more of a social justice kind of argument, right?
1: And there, and the activist class is hostile towards even saying that these are America's founding ideals because we fail to live up to them on occasion, right. well, almost of the time, in fact. Right. But that is the nature of an ideal, right? Right. I mean, you are all constantly aspiring. Towards a position that may be entirely unattainable uh, in in some sort of a utopian perfect idea, but it, it nevertheless represents the the ideal to which you would aspire. Um, That's what they're called ideals. <laughs> they're called ideals, right? I keep using that word because yes. it's really the only way to describe an ideal. The another is the fact that there's been racial progress in this country over the last yeah. fifty years, and to say that is to for. Um, social justice advocates, particularly on the left, is to express some sort of form of ignorance about the state of racial affairs in the United States. The notion that there has been any progress whatsoever is vehemently, passionately resisted. Um, And it strikes me as— Which is insane. An article of faith. Uh, You're literally attacking a theological construct um, because the reaction that it inspires is so uh, passionate and detached from any sort of intellectual honesty that I can see. It's it's measurable, the kind of racial progress that we've seen in the last half century in this country. And uh, you know, there's a, a point right our there. first black president often used to make to his credit, <laughs> and, and nothing gets them more frustrated than to say that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that that is a pure expression of total ignorance. Um, <laughs> it, it it really is. It really demonstrates the extent to which these things have become a, a sort of uh, of an alternative religion for a secular world. Uh, and that's not anybody's figment of their imagination. These these were religious concepts in the 19th century, and they've maintained that that little
0: vestigial tail. You can see it in their rhetoric. Yeah, well, that's that's another part of my moral foundations theory thing is that we are, as Will Herberg used to say, we are homo religio. We are religious creatures by nature. And um, there's this great line by Vogelin, I'll get it right in the show notes, where he says, when the transcendent and the divine become invisible in the world... Uh, the the physical attributes of science become new gods or something like that. And basically, it's sort of like a Neil Gaiman, American God's point, we are what we worship. And so the religious instinct doesn't go away. It just expresses itself either in healthy ways or unhealthy ways. Um, what is the best in terms of persuasive rejoinder that you've seen Uh, so far to the book. And it's perfectly legitimate to say you haven't seen one.
1: No. um, I mean, essentially, again, with I think Julie was probably one of the better uh, challenges to this. Um, It was the notion that uh, hate crime legislation, what essentially by providing individuals with sentencing guidelines that uh provide them with more justice in sort of a theoretical idea takes justice away from people who have not don't have access to those sentencing guidelines and I hadn't really thought about it that way and I I, I still haven't really come up with a reason why that's 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 really tearing apart the fabric of society mm-hmm. I don't really feel like that's a destructive impulse is it unjust I guess you could make the case for it, but I certainly don't think that that's sort of reparative justice. I don't think that's more reparative than maybe.
0: Maybe it, it's it, it. It depends on if it violates double jeopardy, right? I mean, if you well, can't convict someone that they murdered somebody, but you can convict them on a hate crime because they murdered somebody, yeah, you know, right, I mean, there's I a mean, problem it, in there. It, it, it
1: redefines the, the, some of these crimes and it poisons definitions. And I'm generally a fan of keeping definitions as, as clear and concise as possible and not watering them down with political ideas and, and, and ethos. But uh, I, I couldn't really see an argument against
0: it. So yeah. I still okay. really can't. All right. So in the brief time we have remaining, your first book? My first book. How you like it so far? I mean, this,
1: yeah. uh, you know more than I do. I mean, you could probably tell me what to expect. I mean, it's been great so far. The reception has been fantastic, uh-huh. weirdly so, um, because... You Are know, you doing
0: the cocaine monkey hitting refresh on the Amazon rank Every thing?
1: single yeah. hour? Yeah. yeah um, very... I, have some, I, have, I have some guidance for you on all that. Okay, okay. I, I could use some, yeah, because, um, I mean, I'm watching my reviews, and, like, sometimes they disappear on you, and I wonder where they went. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm very focused on that, and uh, and getting feedback on from social media is... Is an absolute drug. I really, I, I deleted my Facebook uh-huh. just because I have no idea what Halloween costumes are lurking in my my uh-huh. ancient past. Halloween is generally a bad holiday; no one should celebrate. But I confess, I I've been forced to mostly by my wife at one point. Um, but Twitter is where people engage with me the most, and having having direct feedback on the book, especially in the days. Immediately preceding that Morning Joe segment, what really blew up um, was an addictive phenomenon. Really yeah. getting that kind of feedback, even though it was all negative, yeah, purely negative. Just getting some sort of feedback on the book alone was was a, a rewarding phenomenon. Because you spend so much time on the thing, it's you spend no. 15 months working on something like I, this. I know
0: it's um, and the thing is, it's a lot like having a kid, right? First of all, no one is more excited about having a kid than the parents. And then your immediate family, and then your closest friends. Right? And then in concentric circles moving out, it's like, oh, your first kid. Oh, good for you. That's great. Here's a bottle, right? By the time you write know? your third book, they're like, Oh, how many how many kids do you have now? You know, no one cares. And um uh Well, fortunately, I don't have any other ideas. Uh <laughs> uh the What is the highest rank you got into on Amazon so far? It was 130 something. Okay, yeah. So once it's above once it's better than 200, right? That actually has some real meaning to it. But there are a lot of authors that are like, I moved from 9,000 to 1500. Yeah, it's like that could literally be like 15 books. Yeah, 12 <laughs> books. And so the Amazon rank is like my agent always says is like The week – the day of release, it's actually pretty useful to follow and then it becomes much less useful thereafter. And the only time it's kind of really useful is for measuring momentum, right? But this is a crazy competitive book market right now. It's very, very easy to get caught in the switches. And, you know, Joe Scarborough gave me like a half hour to do for my book, which was great. I got treated better by those guys than I did by – all of my colleagues at Fox News. I wonder why. And um piece of advice Adam Bellow gave me before my first book came out because people had been attacking my first book for two years before it came out, which was very frustrating because you want to like go after this totally from ignorance argument that they're making, you know, that Frank Rich makes in the New York Times or The Economist makes or the, the Marine – you know, there were lots of people – Literally judging a book by its cover. Literally judging a book by – or by its title, right? Because I don't even think the cover was out yet. And – um and holding your fire is really hard, right? Um, but when it finally came out, that was it was like modest amount of controversy. And um, Adam Bellow said to me, you know, the way to look at the criticisms, the people attacking you, because it's going to get really vicious, is you need to think about them as if they're the animatronic robots at the Pirates of Caribbean ride. They can lunge out at you and they can startle you, but they can't really do anything to you. And it's a, you can take it personally, you know, and, you know, I, I guess in these days of swatting, maybe that we need to revise and extend this a little bit. Although, while I would greatly lament if you were injured in any way or harmed in any way. I would hope so. People swatting you for social justice would be kind of, you know, Tom Wolfian kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, no, uh,
1: I, I mean, there's a, there's a subversive element to it because, I mean, I can't count on... All the hands in this room how many times have been called a racist over yeah. last week uh, from people who have not read the book. And if they pick up the book and uh, and ra- racists were to pick it up and read it, they'd be surprised at how poorly they're treated. Um, it is conservatives who read this book and are, who are predisposed to be sympathetic to their side's. Identitarian activists, their uh, anti-republican, racially anxious activist class, and the people who give them sucker and uh, and and appeal to their sense of, of victimization—they're going to find out that they're they're poorly treated. And some people have have gotten back to me and said, "You made me think a little bit about the compromises that we've made on our side in order to you know achieve you know pure ownership of the libs." Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that's you know that's
0: a huge compliment. Yeah. So. Do you have a good answer yet? Because the question I kind of hate getting the most is, "What do we do about it?"
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I have some. Yeah,
0: what are, what is your standard answer to
1: that? Yeah, so I do offer like some, and I don't have a silver bullet, but. Um... I do offer some prescriptions in the final chapter of the book, and uh, among them <clears throat> are, is the notion that we should appeal to a pragmatic argument to individuals who might be attracted to these ideas, not the ringleaders uh, or its you know activist class, but the people who might find these ideas attractive and generally beneficial and even anodyne concepts that we should all subscribe to is that they, in practice, have made your life harder. Presumably, you share some political convictions around shared economic ideas. Uh, broadly, I shared policy prescriptions, a platform that has little to do with identitarianism. And these ideas and how they are manifesting in the real world are making you less attractive to a critical mass of voters that's going to uh, help you, you know, realize that, that that platform. So... How do we do that? What's the model to stigmatize an ideal, but not purge a person from a political coalition? Because no po- political coalition with a, an interest in self-preservation would purge its own members. It's not going to happen. But you can stigmatize and isolate an idea. Bill Buckley, Barry mm-hmm. Goldwater, Russell Kirk gave us a model to follow for the right. The um, late 1940s, the isolation and the expurgation of the communists from the organized labor movement gives the left an idea mm-hmm. of something that can follow. And then obviously, we all need to start refocusing on civic education. And while I'm skeptical of this as, as a conservative, but there might be a legislative um, approach to this, tying education funding to a certain amount of hours mm-hmm. dedicated in public uh, schools to the study of just civics, not social studies, not diversity studies, right. civic education, yeah. and the Federalist Papers. I didn't read the Federalist Papers until I was a graduate student. Yeah. Um, just, it doesn't isn't part of the curriculum. Um, that good sort good stuff, of stuff in there. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, if you really want to make an argument as a blogger, if I really want to make a constitutional argument, just, you know, search the Federalist Papers. You yeah. You'll find it in there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm much more – I used to reject out of hand almost everything about sort of gitchy-goo, civics education kind of stuff. And now I've completely changed my mind on it. It's um, – just because people don't have any clue what they're talking about when they talk about a great many things, right. you know. Um,
1: And it makes sense that you would be hostile towards the founding ideals if you don't know what they were.
0: Right. Or if the only thing you were taught about them was that the pale penis people put people in slavery, right?
1: Yeah. We've constantly failed to to live up to these ideals and that's all you know of these ideals, then what would you think they were worth
0: preserving? Right. If you've never read it, I think it was originally a commentary essay um, and then it became a title of a book by Robert Goldwyn uh, called Why Blacks, Women and Jews Aren't Mentioned in the Constitution. It's a fantastic essay. Um, really readable. Explains that the three-fifths clause is completely misunderstood. You know, the people who wanted slaves to be counted as right. whole voters were the slave owners, you know, <laughs> and yeah. the people who wanted to be counted as zero were the abolitionists. And, um, sure. anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, is there one, cause I, having been on book tours, is there one question that uh, you wish you were asked that you weren't.
1: I mean, I, I, that's a great question. I'm not sure if I have an answer to it because I'm still a little yeah. fresh into this process. This is week two. Yeah. Um. So I, I'm – Have you started the talk radio around the clock yes, thing yet? Yeah, okay. I've been doing the radio around the clock thing for a while now. And um, the uh, question – I can tell you the question that I hate answering uh, and that is people who want to relitigate my April 2018 fight with Tucker Carlson over Syria – uh, I've gotten that on several occasions really? now. <laughs> yes, People who who say, you know, that was really interesting and I really want to, you know, I, I suppose mirror um, their Tucker Carlson's argument and try to get another bite at that apple. Uh-huh. Um, but no, that's not something I'm yeah. very fond of doing. Um,
0: when my book came out, so including guys who are kind of friends of mine, um, among talk radio guys, it's like one question. What's the book about? So Donald Trump. You know, and wanted like, you know, what about that against Trump issue or whatever? And um, I'd always be like, dude, you know, this book begins two hundred fifty thousand years ago. (laughs) It's not really about Donald Trump. And um, but that was better than when tyranny cliches came out. I discovered that fifteen percent of right wing talk radio hosts, and it could be fifteen percent of all radio talk show hosts, but I mostly talk to right wing. Talk show host did not know how to pronounce the word cliche, and so you would get these radio hosts who would say, "Up next, we got Jonah Goldberg and his new book on the tyranny of the cliches." And, you know, and you're like, shit. of all, it <laughs> sounds like a kids' movie. Re- re- First of all, it reminds you how bad the title was. But second of all, it uh, you're put in this existential dilemma: do you correct the guy's pronunciation or do you just let it go? I get the unmasking of
1: America." Often, yeah, and uh, yes, I do correct them. Yeah, because I have no social graces. <laughs> we'll just go right after you. But Pod has been good to you. Oh my gosh, it's fantastic. Yeah, Commentaries is yeah. a, a wonderful magazine, a, a, a an August magazine with a fantastic history. Everybody there has been spectacular to work with. It's a, it's a very, it's like a family atmosphere and uh, a place that I intend to stay for as long as it'll have me.
0: I'm very jealous that you guys got Christine Rosen. Yeah, because I'm a huge Christine Rosen fan. Um, all right. Well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thank
1: you so much. I mean, the the one Twitter follower who has been agitating for this moment, uh,
0: for I think quite it's been like three time. have been bugging Brilliant. me about when are you going to have Noah Rothman on? You know, and like, it's like wow, when those it comes three to people town. will be very <laughs> satisfied. <laughs> well, it remains to be seen. Um, anyway, uh, Noah Rothman. The book is uh, unjust, not the unmasking of America, but the unmaking of America, and it is available wherever fine books. Are sold, and I'm sure you can. Do you have a website for the thing or anything like that? No,
1: I do not. Yeah, um, you know, people, people tell
0: can... me more and more that you need to have that kind of thing.
1: So. Well, Regnery has it on their website. Yeah, so okay. Regnery, um, Barnes and Noble, Amazon.com, uh-huh.
0: wherever books are sold. Wherever books are sold. All right, Noah Rotman, thank you very much. All right, so uh Noah has left the building. <gasps> what do you think of all that, Jack? Um, well, I wish he probably should have just emailed you
2: before he started writing his book. And, uh... Who is that not true of? <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. That, uh, I, I don't have a good answer to that question. Yeah. I, um... J.R.R. R. Tolkien. Uh... Frank
0: Herbert. Um... Both people who died before email existed. <laughs> that's right. It would be pretty cool if they sent me an email, though. Sort of like in the in the office where the... They send Dwight faxes from the future. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I feel a little bad because, uh, um, as I said to Noah when we went off air. Um, Stop trying to steal my car. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just I, – I, I think the book's great. I think Noah's great. Um, I just – it's a combination of, of actually knowing a lot about the sort of intellectual history of social justice stuff and – also agreeing almost entirely with Noah about most of this stuff, that it makes it very difficult for me to come up with sort of questions where we're going to disagree on on things, and so I kind of felt like I I did a little too much uh, Podhoretsian monologuing. But... Who's that?
2: <laughs> I, I, I really, I mean, I, I, have, I as I said, I think on the last episode, it's it's hard to know what he's up to these days. Pod? Yeah, yeah, because he's disappeared from Twitter. And uh from the Weekly Standard, which also disappeared.
0: Yeah. Um I go to Commentary Magazine's website, which is quite good. And um and I actually text with John Pedorts quite often. Well, we're not also privileged. And uh, I appear on this podcast called Glop with Him, which is worth listening to. Yeah, but
2: these are like Bigfoot sightings. Um Not in the way that (laughs) that they're often understood on this show. Okay, they're like Loch Ness monster sightings. We don't have any Loch Ness monster erotica history on this show. Although now
0: this is where it started, I guess. Anyway, Um, but just getting back to social justice for two seconds. I kind of feel like we should get Pete Pete Betke or some some Hayek guy back on here to talk about this stuff because the ping has gone out. You know Hayek stuff on social justice. In The Mirage of Social Justice, but also in um, – what is it? Individualism oh, – God, I can't remember the name of it, but there's a sort of book-length essay that he does on individualism. Um, true and false, I think it's. Individualism true and false or something like that? Yeah, that sounds real. I think that's it. And um, you know the, the point that I think it, it's so important and so difficult for some people to sort of grasp is that if – you don't have objective, neutral rules for how you're going to arbitrate society. Then basically you are reducing everything down to contests of power. And, uh, it's sort of like the, the famous complaint, you know, criticism of, of pragmatism from, gosh, now I'm blanking his name. Uh, Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell, you know, where he says that, you know, if you follow pragmatism to its logical conclusion, um, basically all disputes are going to be settled by ironclads and maxim guns. You need some sort of independent neutral rules found usually in a constitution and the rule of law that say that even though a uh, white male billionaire is despised because he's a white male billionaire doesn't mean he's necessarily wrong on the facts in some criminal – or social contention. I mean, it's sh- you know as as Calvin Coolidge used to say one with the law on the side is a majority. And if the, the whole point of the social justice thing is, as Hayek points out, it is it is a desire to replace neutral rules with the with the rules and ambitions of one faction and declare it justice, Even as you are committing profound injustice against actual individuals, justice properly understood has to be about holding people responsible for their actual actions and not the actions of some imagined ancestor. And yet that's what the social justice thing boils down to. It is profoundly reactionary because it basically is an argument about uh, intergenerational guilt and moral aristocracies um, and judging people based on the color of their skin. And and that's why I really do think it's nonsense. And one of the reasons I'm kind of pissed off at myself is I wrote that column yesterday, plug in uh, Noah's book, and I go on this long riff about how it's nonsense, and I forgot that I was going to have this quote at the beginning of it from Friedrich Hayek about how social justice isn't simply, doesn't fall under the category of error. It falls under the category of nonsense because it's like, social justice is like saying a moral stone. It's ridiculous. And the fact that we empower but it's it's effective because people use it as this sort of magical incantation to pow- empower themselves and say that they are the for- forces of righteousness and the forces of justice and if no one's willing to push back on it you know it's sort of like in um in parks and recreation when the crazy uh lava lizard god worshiping cult um uh, they, they they the reasonableists, right they worshiped a god uh, a lizard god who was going to come out of a volcano and cover the world with uh lava and and they called themselves the reasonableists because they thought that way anybody who criticized them would be put in an awkward position of having to be against reasonableness and it's the same thing with social justice it is purely a tactical canard devoid of any serious intellectual or or philosophical rigor that basically says we are the forces of good. They, and people who disagree with us are definitionally evil because they disagree with us. And so it becomes a tautology. It's sort of like, you know, I think I said in Tyranny of Cuches, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, the force. What is the force? The force is the thing that the Jedi's are strong with. What are Jedi's? Jedi's are people who are strong with the force, right? It's just like it's the good people. It's Manichaean.
2: Yeah. A friend of mine ch- totally changed The way I understand the Star Wars movies, when he told me that they make much more sense if any time someone says The Force in the movie, or in the movies, you replace it with The Plot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So even this is like, and he said this before, The the Force Awakens got its title, so it even works for that, because it's like, oh, The Plot (laughs) Awakens, oh, it's been... (laughs) been 35 years since the last movie. Oh, I got to go back and test that. That's actually really good. Uh, yeah, so when Yoda is in the when Luke meets Yoda in Dagobah he says something like the force the the force is all around us. The plot is all around us. <laughs> and Luke is called strong in the force. He's yeah. strong in the plot. He's a main character. It's really the cipher to understand everything. And it's been, it just shows how vacuous it, when he's, it is. When
0: he's trying to drop the torpedoes in the exhaust tube and the, the force, Luke, yeah. trust the force. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it works for everything. Yeah, no, it does. Oh, I like that a lot. Um, all right. Uh, what else do we have on the agenda? Before
2: you abandon social justice, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> uh, Is didn't Hayek also say something about how Putting the word social in front of anything is kind of a silly thing most of the time.
0: Yeah. No, he, he, he's he got ai I can't remember how it goes. But there's this great line where he says something to the effect of that all you have to do is put social in front of something and it becomes good. I mean, it's kind of like reminding me in college where uh, one of my best friends would say that everywhere you look, he would talk about how annoyed he was where it didn't matter what the class was on or what a panel was on or what a book was on, they always ended with and the environment.
2: Right? <laughs>
0: so it's sort of like, you know, uh, economic reform in the third world and the environment. I mean, it was just the, and it was a way because talking about the environment just meant you were good. Right. And um, the social justice stuff is it's, it's I really I, I got to write about it at greater length, but I, I, it's priestcraft. It is, it is. You know, we talk about before about how I'm constantly harping on the augurs and haruspices of heruspices? Heruspices mm-hmm. of ancient good. Rome and ancient Greece, you know, these people who read the entrails of birds to divine all sorts of uh, things, literally divine all sorts of things about, you know, the future of a war or who's going to be Caesar or whatever. And I'm sure that the, the, the priests believed what they were doing. They, they took it seriously. They thought it was akin to a science and I'm sure the people who paid them, you know, to, to do these things thought it was designs. But if you strip it down, it's nonsense. It's just garbage. And so much of the social justice stuff is a way to rationalize the will to power of people who want to bend institutions in, in their own favor or in their group's own favor in ways and while sort of invoking morality on the cheap. And it's, grotesque and it, and and it has no limit and because it has no limiting principle because there is no thing well social justice needs to go this far and then no farther and because it's not based on any neutral rules you're it's always going to uh it's going to it's it's all appetite it's all desire for more power because by definition you know there's always going to be some more social justice that is required and uh, I think it's deeply pernicious and the inability of so many – I mean that's why I know his book is important because the inability of people – people are so terrified of seeming like they're against social justice that uh they just go along. And actually that gets us to some punditry which I alluded to before. Look, I think wearing blackface is bad. I think it's a bad thing to do. I think wearing a Klan outfit is even worse. It is amazing where we are as a society that you have – orders of magnitude greater scandal about the fact that some dude 34 years ago committing no crime whatsoever allegedly did something really offensive and stupid when he was in medical school just days after him defending leaving viable babies to die um, or at least sounding like he was and defending legislation that called essentially for that and you know Alex DeSantis has a good piece at NRO about how the You know, the SAS bill, which is about abolishing infanticide, it's not about preventing abortion, is being cast by the media as an anti-abortion bill, which now means that, you know, following that logic, it means that abortion really is a right that extends until after the baby is actually born. I mean, it's it's like Barbara Boxer is being proven true when she said that it's not a baby until you bring it home from the hospital and a society that just sort of turns its back on this. You know, this is what I was getting at in my G-file thing about dogma. A society that doesn't have a dogmatic, reflexive aversion to infanticide is in real trouble. You know, there are certain – there's supposed to be some certain settled questions and whether or not it's okay to kill healthy, viable babies outside of the womb, I thought was one of these ones we settled. I thought it was a lot more settled about than whether or not – One could still be a public servant if one had put shoe polish on their face 34 years ago, but apparently not. Anyway, all right. uh, One last thing uh, I should talk to everybody about. Uh, The National Review Institute is uh, holding its giant Ideas Summit again in 2019 just next month. They're always really good. Is the summit giant or are the ideas giant? It's a contest between both. It (laughs) It is a field of battle of titans. So please join the National Review Institute at the 2019 Ideas Summit at the Mandarin Ho- Oriental Hotel in Washington, D.C. on March 28th and 29th, this biennial conference, biennial conference will feature a powerful and diverse lineup of speakers, including many of your favorite National Review writers, representing the very best that the conservative movement has to offer. The 2019 theme is The Case for the American Experiment, with a focus on American exceptionalism and the country's resilience and economic recovery. For more information and to register, please visit www.nrinstitute.org. That's www.nrinstitute.org. Space is limited, so reserve your seat today. I hope to see you in Washington this spring. Also, uh, I have the cover story in the next issue of um, National Review. It's about the history of progressivism and the use of the moral equivalent of war. Uh, We're going to do a podcast on that uh, down the road um anyway. And uh what other any else we need to announce Jack? No. I started reading uh, God Emperor of Dune on the metro this morning. Fantastic.
2: And how I'm, far are you in it? I literally just began, but I'm already really interested in it because the opening chapter is about a bunch of runners running away from something. Mm. And I'm Don't remember
0: I remember that, but okay. And
2: there are a lot of very Vivid descriptions of how tired people get when they've been running for a long time, which
0: I can relate to. I, I got you. When is the uh, Boston Marathon?
2: April 15th. Uh-huh. How's training going? It's going well. Uh-huh.
0: When was the last time you ran a full marathon? Uh, October 2017. I don't mean a competitive one. I mean ran the distance of 26 miles.
2: Oh, most people don't run a full marathon before they actually run really? a, the race. Why is that? You just don't – you don't really n- need to. It's kind of a superfluous training. I I only ran – the longest I ran before my first marathon was 22 – a
0: little more than 22 miles. Uh-huh. I mean you can, but I just don't think it's necessary. I would think that what you would want to do is like run like 30, 30 miles, right? And that way you're are – you, Are you going to try to give me a training advice? No, no. I'm, I'm saying this is, this is what my assumption would have been. I'm not trying to give you training advice because isn't the whole point of like sort of delaying when you hit that – exhaustion point or that wall of pain or whatever they call it
2: yeah but once you just all bets are off at that point you just have to it's almost a non-physical contest once that happens and i didn't the way i the way i ran my last marathon i didn't get there until about until i had about a mile left Uh so i think i did things right
0: all right okay i will be on cbs's face the nation this sunday and uh other than that, I got nothing else for you. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We broke three oh, we broke 3,000 reviews on iTunes, um, which is great. I'm very grateful for it. It doesn't seem to have this magical transformative power that I had been promised. Well, well wait. What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it's great nonetheless and really appreciate it. And uh, we're going to go talk to Dan Hanan in a couple minutes now. Talk to you later. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs>